title of my sermon today is on-the-job training. Accurately communicating your plans to another is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, if you're unable to communicate what you want someone else to do, you have a problem. And this is especially true during warfare. Now, the last thing you want is for your enemy to know what your next move is going to be. During World War II, the United States Marines recruited bilingual Navajo speakers to serve in their communications units in the war against Japan. Because the Navajo language was such a little-known language, it was the perfect one to use when putting together a secret line of communication, a code. The reason I bring this up is because earlier last week, a man by the name of Alfred K. Newman passed away. He was one of the last Navajo code talkers. He passed away in New Mexico at the age of 94 years old. Uh, the article I read uh, said this about him. said, Newman was, one, uh, was among 400 Navajos who helped defeat the Japanese during World War II by developing an unbreakable code for military transmissions using the, using the Dine language, the Dine language, which is the Navajo language. Interestingly, in Navajo, and I know a little bit about Navajo. I don't know any Navajo. I lived on the Navajo Indian Reservation, what, 14 years ago now, um, for, for a year. And the, in Navajo, and I, this is not coming from me, this is coming from the article again, there are no words for our, a lot of our modern warfare terminology. They don't have words for bomb or airplane, which is why using their language to put together a code was perfect. Not only is the language hard to understand, like not a whole lot of people know Navajo, you know, very few people do, and then people in Japan probably didn't know, have any clue, right? It would have been hard for them to figure out what language it was, and on top of it, even the terminology was mixed around. It was a perfect code, and as a result, it's one of the major reasons we won uh, the Pacific theater of World War II. The point I'm doing is this, you know, I, I, I tell you this because following instructions is important when it comes to the different parts of our lives. If we are not equipped or properly instructed to perform a task, there is a good chance we are going to fail. We're just going to fail at that task if we obey the command at all. Right? If you're not prepared to do it, you might not even obey what they ask you to do. This morning, we're going to look at Luke's account of Jesus sending his 12 disciples out on their own for the very first time. In studying Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 6, we will see how Christ prepared his disciples for their calling. Of course, I believe that these same preparations are applicable to all Christians today, which will be my point this morning. But before we go any farther ahead of ourselves, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I ask that you come down upon us now, Lord. We know your spirit's within us, your spirit's all around us. Allow us to feel your presence. Allow us to reach out to you in our spirit so that we can be one with you as we study your word. Help us focus on you and help us uh, help your spirit within us enlighten our minds and help us just truly partake in your word today so that we can grow in our faith and we can use it um, for the spread of the gospel to all the nations. So Lord, I thank you and I praise you in your wonderful name. Amen. Turn to me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Sit still. Stop moving everywhere. Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to look in a minute at Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 6. That is my text for this morning. So Luke begins with Jesus sending his disciples out on their own. This is the beginning of chapter 9. It took us forever to get through chapter 8. So the beginning of Luke chapter 9, he begins by sending his disciples out on their own. You could almost call this a practicum or internship is what I was kind of thinking here. Uh, before they were commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, um, they, they were sent out on their own in preparation for that calling that they're going to eventually receive that we will read a little bit later on. 
as we study through Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 6, I would like to break the text down into three parts. That's what I'm going to do. So we're going to look at the text, and I'm going to look at three different parts. So like I said, Luke chapter 9, I need to turn to it, and I'm going to make three points this morning, which are the three parts of this text, which are applicable to all Christians today, not just the early um, Christians there. So look first at Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, and we're going to look and see how Jesus equipped his disciples. Jesus equipped his disciples. Verse 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. So Jesus equipped his disciples. At some point following the events of my last couple of weeks of sermons, which is really like last month of sermons, of Jesus casting the demons out of the demonic man, of him curing or, or halting the bleeding of the, of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and then last week, uh, along with that story of the woman bleeding, uh, him, him rising, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, a synagogue leader, back to life. At some point after that this event takes place, Luke doesn't get into details, which of course bothers me because I like details, but he doesn't give us details. He just says it happened. So at some point following those events, this event happens. Luke tells us that Jesus called his 12 disciples together and sent them out. Mark tells us, so I'm going to kind of give you the background of the other Gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this event. John does not really record this event. Mark tells us that they were sent out in six groups of two, making it, uh, you, know, you know, they're going out by twos. You know, they have a partner, which immediately brought to my mind, who was Judas's partner? Just a thought. You know, who got that short, short straw, if you know what I'm saying? You know, someone had to be a partner with Judas Iscariot. Uh, go figure, though. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus gave them boundaries as to who and where they were to go. So I, what I'm going to have you do this morning, we're going to do some finger holding here. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 9, but turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is Matthew's account of the same event. So I need you to kind of keep an eye on both sections. So you're going to keep your finger or your bookmark in one, and then go ahead and go over to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to look at the same story, at least part of it, from Matthew's perspective of what Jesus said. So I'd like to look at verses 5 and 6, and we're going to see about these boundaries that Jesus gave his 12 in regards to where they were to go. So look at verse 5 and 10. Jesus says, according to Matthew, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So very simply, he told them to go talk to the Israelites. Focus on the Israelites. Don't focus on the Samaritans, and don't focus on the, the Gentiles, meaning everybody else. Focus on the people of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. An assumption I'm going to make is that this location was primarily that northern area of Galilee, the area we've been kind of in the last couple of weeks. It's possible his disciples went down through Samaria to get to Judea, which is where Jerusalem was located, but the odds are against it. I mean, again, Jesus just said to avoid the Samaritans. If they went through Samaria or around Samaria, they would have either gone and been in contact with Samaritans or Gentiles. So the logic says that they focused the ministry primarily in the area of Galilee, uh, which I don't have a map. I wish I did. But the area of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. But, of course, the text doesn't explicitly say this. The text says he went, they went to the Israelites is what, what, the, what Matthew's telling us. Luke tells us that Jesus told his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. Look at what Matthew says now. Again, look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 and 8. 
and Jesus says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. So Jesus told his disciples where to go and what to do. But now my question is how? How do the disciples do this? How are Jesus' disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings? And this answer is simple, by using the power and authority that Jesus gave them. Look back at Luke, Luke chapter 9 again, verse, verse 1. It says, you know, and gave them power and authority. So here's an interesting uh, kind of tying into Greek. And again, I don't want to beat you with the Greek at the same time. Greek is important sometimes. The Greek word used here for gave is in what's called the aorist tense. So again, we have past, present, and future tense. Greek has six tenses three of which are past tense. This is one of the past tense. But the aorist tense is like a flash shot in the past. Like if I took a picture of us, it would be an instance of a, of a moment of time compared to me taking a video of us. It'd be like, take, I guess, taking a picture of me compared to the live stream that we're doing now, which is a video of me. Jesus gave them power for this one moment in time. He didn't give them power that continued on. They will eventually receive power. We're going to talk about that. But the power that they received was for this moment in time, meaning this mission that they were on. So now the question I have is, what is this power and authority? What is it? What are we talking about? And I think the answer is probably the Holy Spirit. It seems very logically to me that it is the Holy Spirit who gave them this power. Through the temporary power and authority of the Holy Spirit, given to them through Jesus, the disciples were freely able to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings. So, do Christians today receive this power and authority? And the answer is yes, of course they do. Now turn, you keep your finger in Matthew, keep your finger in Luke, but now go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. Acts chapter 1. So Luke also wrote the book of Acts. You can almost say that the books of Luke and the book of Acts are two volumes in one set. This is a continuation. Luke cha Acts chapter 1, verse 6 down to verse 8. So some 40 days after Jesus rose from the grave, more than likely near the end of that 40-day period of time, possibly the last day, possibly the last moments Jesus was on earth, he gives these instructions to his disciples. He says, or this is what Luke writes, then he says in verse 7. So verse 6, so when they had come together, meaning Jesus and the 12 and others that were following him, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Then verse 8, here is the key. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit came upon the early Christians at that moment, and I believe the power of the Holy Spirit came upon every Christian the moment they were saved, even in this day and age. Meaning, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. Bottom line. And I, something I want to point out, too, is notice the change in demographics, if you want to call it that. When Jesus sent out the disciples for this first time, he limited them to just the Israelites. But then, when he's about to ascend to heaven, and he's truly commissioning them to go and preach the gospel to all nations, that, that is, there is no more limitations. There's no limit on who they are to preach to. They're to go and preach to everyone, starting in Israel, moving outward to Samaria, and eventually to all the world, meaning everybody. We're not, we don't have limited anything when it comes to the spread of the gospel. 
Now, some early Christians were able to use the power and authority given to them through the Holy Spirit to heal people. Uh, this is just something I think I want to address. I'm not going to address it in, in great detail. But th this was essential during that time. The ability to heal people was essential during that time in order to verify the New Testament writings, right? I mean, we, they didn't have the Bible the way we do. It was different then. They needed to prove what they were saying. They needed to verify what the writers were saying and that the message of the gospel was true and accurate. We don't need that anymore. We have the true and accurate word of God. This is proven already. We don't need to heal someone in order to prove this. With that in mind, I don't believe the gift of healing, as well as some other gifts, are still in existence today. They're still not in use the way they were then. This isn't saying that we can't lay hands upon someone and pray for someone and that God would heal them. What this is saying is that an individual Christian does not have the ability to heal someone anymore. It's all in God's hands. With that in mind, let's turn to really where I want to focus here. All Christians, all a Christian needs to do is proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the point we're getting at here. We do not need to do this in fear or with shame because we have the power and authority of the Holy Spirit within us. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For I, this is Paul talking to the church in Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That should be our battle cry no matter what. We should never be ashamed of the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we can be saved. Bottom line, we need to tell that to everybody. Use the power and authority that God has given you to tell everyone and anyone about what Jesus has done in saving your life. Let's move on. So that first um, part of the text was that Jesus equipped his disciples. Now the second part is Jesus instructed his disciples. Jesus instructed his disciples. Look again at Luke chapter 9, verse 3, down to verse 5. The words of Christ, in, according to Luke, uh, verse 3 down to verse 5 says this, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as, though, and as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So what were Jesus' instructions to his disciples? They can be broken down into three parts. First of all, Jesus told them to take nothing with them. Look at the text according to Luke. Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, meaning food, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. He told them not to bring any extra food, not to bring any cash with them, and not to bring any extra clothing. I'm telling you right now, I know Hud and Lori just went away. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't have brought gone with nothing. You know, you're going to pack your bags. You're going to be prepared to go. You're going to have extra money in your pocket. You're going to have a couple bags or several bags, you know, however many you might need to bring. I mean, sometimes it feels like I have one bag and the rest of my family has everything else. I mean, we, we bring too much stuff sometimes. But the point is, Jesus told them not to bring anything. He said, leave it behind. You don't need it. And he told them, no, again, no money, no food, no extra clothing. What a crazy thought. And this is what they're called to do. In Matthew's account, Jesus tells us why this is so. So go ahead and look back in Matthew chapter 10 to look at verse 9 and 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, according to Matthew, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats 
or sandals or a staff. And here's the part that I want to focus on. For the worker is worthy of his support. What Jesus is saying is that you, sh the way you, and as we're going to find out in a second, right? Um, they're going to enter into someone's presence. And if they're worthy, the way that they're going to determine, whether the disciples are going to determine whether the household they've entered is worthy is by that household supporting them. Bottom line, if they're not able to support them, they're not, not, not able, that's not the right word. If they just choose not to support them, then they're to wipe the dust off their feet. But again, gee, the point of this first section is that Jesus told them to take nothing with them. Then he says, enter a house and stay there throughout. Focus on one spot. Sometimes we have a problem doing that. We get distracted very easily. Verse 4, Jesus says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Matthew says, adds a little bit of a context to this. A little, he changes it up a little bit. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 11 to 13, the first half of verse 13. He, Jesus says, according to Matthew, And whatever city or village you enter, acquire who, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Jesus told them to find the household of the worthy people within the town, meaning... From the perspective of what we're talking about, the godly people, the people who were living the, the proper Jewish life, not, not the other people, of course. And he said, if they are worthy, stay there and give them a blessing of peace, as opposed to a house that is unworthy where they're going to wipe their feet off, which is the next part. The next part of this instruction was that if the town or city does not receive them, again, meaning the household does not receive them, they were to leave the town and shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. Look at Matthew for the last time, then you can leave Matthew. Matthew chapter, chapter 10, second half of verse 13 to verse 15. Jesus says, but if it is not worthy, if the house is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. A bit of a context here. Uh, the Jewish people, when they would go to a Gentile place, a Gentile land, a Gentile country, as they returned in a, a symbolic act of, of kind of separating ties from that country, they would wipe the dust off their feet, essentially leaving the dust behind, leaving that entire Gentile country behind as they returned to the, their own country, to the land of Israel. The idea here. What Jesus is saying is that there's going to be some Jewish people, some faithful people who are not going to be living the way they are, that they should be treated just like the Gentiles, which is a very powerful statement. The disciples were to let it go. As we're going to quote a song from a Disney movie. The disciples were to let it go and walk away, leaving the punishment to God. I think oftentimes Christians are hurt by other people, both non-Christians and Christians alike. People say things and they do things that just aren't godly. And, of course, for a non-Christian, that's uh, understandable. But for a Christian, it, it's hard to even fathom how someone who has God within him, has the Holy Spirit within him, can be so negative and be so mean. What this is saying is that there are times where we just need to walk away and not allow it to affect us. I mean, I, in my mind, what this is saying is that the most important thing the disciples could do is serve God. There is nothing more important than serving God. That comes first. The people who are against you, they're God's problem. They're not your problem. Move forward and focus on God. So where do Christians today receive instructions from Christ? So this is really the application for this point. Where do Christians today receive the instructions from, these, receive instructions from Christ? 
I wish, and Tab and I had a conversation about this the other night, I wish that we had an ability as Christians to go to heaven real quick and consult with him. Because there are times I wish I could just go up there and sit down and chat with Christ. You know, hey, God, I, I kind of need you to give me some information. I'm confused. Help me out here, you know. Or even just a hug. I mean, how many times would you like to go to heaven real quick and get a quick hug from God? That make you feel much better. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. In reality, Jesus is not amongst us physically anymore. He's just not here. He's not walking with us physically. That's not, that's not his plan. So how are Christians today instructed by Christ? And obviously the answer is simple. Right here, the word of God. Much heavier Bible than my normal one and my other one. So i got to be careful. There goes my nose. The word of God is how he instructs us. I've told you the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. This is your owner's manual. This is how God speaks to us today. As much as it would be nice that Jesus is right in front of us and we can have that open dialogue, we can. We can communicate with him through prayer and he returns that communication through his word. Open it. Do something with it. Here's a couple Bible verses that are, that are probably well known. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then the New Living Translation translated that verse quite well. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for, to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That middle line, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's the bottom line. This is how we tell. Remember the magic eight ball? That would be nice, too, if that was real. You can just ask it a question, and it gives you the right answer, but that's not how it works. But we have the Bible. The Bible's better than the magic eight ball. You can ask the Bible a question, figure out what the Bible says, and that's what God wants you to do. Bottom line. Jesus' instruction to Christians today through his word is also aided by the Holy Spirit within us. So this is a couple more verses here. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So from the disciples' perspective, the Holy Spirit's going to remind them all the stuff that Jesus said. And if you look at some of these books, especially Matthew and John, uh, these are individuals that spent three years with Christ. They needed the Holy Spirit to help them remember everything they said. I wish I remembered everything my wife said. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, I forget a lot of what she says because it sometimes goes a lot. Uh, what, what do they say about men and women? The amount of words I use compared to the amount of words she used, unbelievable. The point here is that the Holy Spirit was needed to help them remember it. But the Holy Spirit within us as Christians also is what helps us understand it. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside you, you're not going to understand the word of God. Bottom line. I mean, comparing it at least. I mean, you might, some people might get a good grip on it. I mean, there are some very, very intelligent people who even call themselves theologians that have read this book cover to cover multiple times, have studied it in depthly, but don't believe a single word that it says. And it's a sad truth. Of rea the reality is that there are too many people who know what this says and they don't believe what it says. We need to believe the words in here and allow the spirit within us to help us understand them. So the point of all of it is read your Bible. Read it, dust it off, pick it up, <clears throat> hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, and meditate on it daily. This, not, this, this isn't one of those coffee table books. I have a couple of them. My parents keep on giving me these coffee table books with like 
Native American photos and, and uh, Civil War photos. And I'm like, Ma, I, I'm really it's my father. I'm like, I, I'm never going to read these. I don't even have a coffee table. So, I mean, I have nowhere to put it. This is not a coffee table book. This needs to be open daily. You, your, book, your Bible should have creases in it. it. My other Bible was falling apart. That's why I had to get a new one. I mean, that's what it should be. That should be your goal. Your goal should be to use it so much, to open it so frequently that it's falling apart. And unlike the American flag, it, it's just another book. I mean, it's not, it, the real words are what, what makes it powerful. We have an amazing source of the instructions of God right in front of us. We need to use it. So in the final part of our text, we have that he equipped his disciples, Jesus instructed his disciples, and now we see that the disciples obeyed Jesus. The disciples obeyed Jesus. Look at Luke, once again, Luke chapter 9, verse, nine, verse 6. Verse 6 of our text. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So verse 6 paints a very simple picture. Verse 8 paints a very, very simple picture. The disciples obeyed Jesus. They did what he said to do. So my question for you is very simple. How about you? Are you obeying Jesus today? Are you doing what he wants you to do? Now the first step in obeying Jesus is accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth that he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins and rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die, and confess that belief outwardly through what you do and what you say and what you preach, then you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. Bottom line. But then the second step comes after salvation. It comes after salvation. You need to do what he says to do. Bottom line. I think about disobeying children. It's perfect that Cameron's here. I can talk about her. Disobeying children. When I, when I tell Cameron to do something, I kind of expect her to do it. If I say, oh, this is, I've given up on the room a couple times. But Cameron's not a good example of the room. Katie, Cadence's room is a mess. Like, this room is horrible. Tabitha blames Cameron, though. She says Cameron chooses to play in Katie's room so that Katie's room gets messy and her room doesn't, which is possible. The point, though, is when you're told to do something, you're kind of expected to do it or else you get in trouble, is the thought. And then what came to mind when I was thinking about this was imagine what God is doing in heaven right now. Imagine how God reacts when we disobey him. I mean, oh my, <laughs> if he reacts the way I react, I'm in trouble, is the point. How does God react when you disobey him? Now the question, though, is how do we figure out what God wants you to do? And again, it's in, the answer is simple again. It's right here in his word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This book is a powerful book if you allow it to work within your life. The word of God aided by the Holy Spirit convicts us to do what is right and wrong. It helps us know what is right and helps us know what is wrong. It cuts into us, leading us in the way that God wants us to go. The word of God, along with the aid of the Holy Spirit, guides us through life. It is our owner's manual. I'm saying all the things I always say. Another great Bible verse, uh, Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is that flashlight. You ever try to walk around with the lights all off? I mean, it's not very easy. You need light. You need the flashlight. 
You know, the word of God is like a flashlight on a dark night. It's like the lighthouse for a boat, a ship. You need it. You need the light. If you do not open your Bible, then you will not see the ways of God clearly enough to obey them. You need to open up the light, open up the word of God, and allow it to illuminate your path. Trust the Lord in his word always. Bottom line, let me close up. Getting lost is not fun. Uh, you would think that with all the technology we have nowadays, we would never get lost. That, that, with that in mind, if for some reason my phone wasn't working, I don't think I can even get around town. I mean, and, and, and let me make it real even simpler. Um, we've gone back to Connecticut, to Stratford, my hometown, and I'm the same way. <laughs> I grew up, I spent, what, 18 years there, you know, like, I mean, until I left. And, and I, we've gone there every year since I've been born, right? I've, I've always been in this town. You would think I'd know where to go without a phone, without the GPS. But guess what? I don't. I have no clue where I'm going. I get lost. So I don't know what I would do without technology, but sometimes that same technology causes us a little trouble. Here's a good example of this. A Swiss van driver in his vehicle had to be rescued by a helicopter after his GPS, again, more specifically, a satellite navigational, his satellite navigational equipment, sent him up a remote mountain path. So he drove up a walking path up a mountain. Driver Robert Ziegler, 37, somehow made his way near the peak of a mountain in Bergen, Switzerland. When he was unable to go any further or turn around to go back the way he came, he knew that he was in trouble. Rescue workers needed to get a helicopter to carry the van and its driver to safety down the mountain. Like I said, getting lost is not a fun thing. It's not fun to be lost, but getting physically lost is much less life-threatening than getting spiritually lost or being spiritually lost. There is nothing more important than finding Jesus in your life, than finding him as your Lord and Savior. Without Christ, you will permanently be perpetually lost. It would be nonstop. It's just consistently lost. You're never going to find your way because you're never going to find Jesus. Turn your life over to Christ. Allow the Lord through his Holy Spirit, to work in your life. Follow God's instructions through his word and obey him always. Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you again. Help us trust in you no matter what. Help us know that you have such a powerful and awesome, awesome plan for us. Help us know that when we put our trust in you, everything will be okay. And when we put our full trust in you, that our path will be just slightly clearer. That don't mean we're not going to face hardships. It doesn't mean we're not going to have difficulties. But with you on our side, everything else will line up. So Lord, now I ask that you just bless us, help us remember you, and trust in you and all that we do in your wonderful name. Amen.